Hello. Hey. So, you know how I have my piano now? Yes. I have what sounds like a very elitist problem. <laughs> Ooh, tell me about the woes of the uh, of the bourgeoisie here. Well, the problem when you play classical music is that when you get a song in your head, there's no good way to remember it because there's no lyrics. And so you're like, it's the one that goes, and you know, it's Chopin. Yeah. So he named all of them like Waltz and E major or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you just have to know that. It's like symphonies and stuff too. It's, you know, oh, it's mm -hmm. Mozart's sixth. I don't know. You know, like I have no idea what they <laughs> yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so much harder to remember. So. And so I, I spent like half a day combing through my books trying to find this one fucking song. <laughs> you know, like play a little bit. No, that's not it. <laughs> that's not it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is a, that's a bougie problem to have. It is. <laughs> it really is. All right. Well, do we want to get into it? Let's get into it. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to be discussing today? We are going to be talking about queers and communism. All right. All right. So... Help me out, <laughs> terminology-wise. How can I help you, straight man? All right, yeah. So <laughs> typically I see LGBTQ, something along those lines, just LGBT, mm -hmm. or well, some, some sort of variation of that. I yes. usually have not seen like references to maybe the queer community or something. I guess mm -hmm. my experience of it has been showing it as a pejorative thing. So I would say, get with the times. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, but for real, I would say in the mm -hmm. in the younger queer community, we're fine with it as long as you don't go up to someone and like spit in their face and then call them a queer. Like it's about tone, right? So if you're not using it as a slur or something, yeah, exactly. Okay. Generally, if people want to call themselves queer, that's absolutely fine. You should not police that. Mm -hmm. I understand that there are some people like who are older and in the community who like grew up with that as a slur and like, okay, sorry, like don't use that for yourself then. But I don't think it's cool for you to like police other people. Okay. So it's a conversation a lot of people are into. I like it because it's a blanket term mm -hmm. and it's a lot easier for me to just say, hey, I'm queer than saying, let me delve into my sexuality and gender thoughts with a stranger, <laughs> you know? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, you know, it's never incumbent upon heterosexual people to be like, oh, well, here's, you know, I'm into, you don't have to describe all that. <laughs> you don't have to say exactly the sorts of people you are attracted to or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just... It's a shortcut and it's it's a very flexible label too, which is good because I think sexuality and gender stuff, like it's all a spectrum. It's totally mm -hmm. normal if that changes. So for me and for a lot of people, it's a, a lot more forgiving of a label. So you were saying this is an umbrella term, so that covers all of it. And then within that, of course, you have you can have different identities and stuff. Oh, for sure. For sure. There's okay. a bajillion. <laughs> so Awesome. Yeah. So I want to start with some history. And let me preface this with this could be several episodes. So this yeah. is just going to be a quick overview of some stuff. Mm -hmm. I'd like to start with some theory. We're nerds. Let's do it. Theory. I did some research about, you know, kind of the Marxist lens of queerness and how that relates to capitalism. And if you look at like the long lens and, you know, do the whole materialist historical worldview. Yeah. Before capitalism biological reproduction was basically the way you had to make a living. 
if you think about family farms and serfdoms and all that, your family equals labor, which equals wealth. So basically everyone had a job to do in some ways is a little more equal because it's like women were valued for their work in a lot of ways. Like they were carting wool, which they were then selling, you know, they were okay. a lot more, you couldn't afford to have unpaid labor. Basically. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, no, I'm wrong. It still fucking sucked for women. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pretend like it was good times. <laughs> the uh, halcyon middle ages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely where I'd want to be. But what's interesting about that is that when you get capitalism, it requires the family unit, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. So instead of the family sharing all the, all the work, the men would go and get paid for their labor, and then women were shifted entirely to unpaid labor. In, in the house, right? In terms of caring for... Yes. In terms of caring for their family and everything? Yes, cooking, cleaning, all that. Mm-hmm. And that's when you see, you know, if you think about the industrial era, there was a lot more products, like, leveraged towards being at home and cooking, like... The reason we have baking soda is because they're like, oh, well, women are doing more baking at home and they need to have like time to do this. So instead of like, making them like wait for their bread to rise all the time, let's do quick breads. Oh, damn. I'm also okay. watching British cool. Bake Off. So <laughs> I, I didn't know that. That's awesome. <laughs> I love food history. It's great. Yeah. No, it's super interesting. It's weird. So capitalism introduced in some ways it solidified the family unit because it's like, okay, now you are like dependent on this man for money and he is dependent in a lot of ways on your free labor, but he can also just leave and go get somebody else. Mm-hmm. In some ways, though, it did make it a little bit easier to be queer if you're a certain kind of person. Okay. So if you are a white man in this era, it was easier because you didn't have to depend on your family. You could go get a job in a different town and just like go lead a quietly gay life. You're saying it was easier compared to like before be- feudalism. Yes. Okay. Where, like, you couldn't just leave. Right. Okay. You even have some cases of, like, trans men doing that. Because you could just leave, go to a different town where literally nobody knows you, and just work as a man. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense. So, the caveat here is that it's mostly for white men. This was easy for. Yeah. And it did not work for everybody. Like, obviously, it wasn't, like, a common thing as far as I could tell. Mm-hmm. But it did provide a little more wiggle room in that way. It was... A slight improvement for certain groups only, basically, is what you're saying? Yes, that's what I would say. Okay. I also want to do a, what's the opposite of a shout out? A (laughs) A negative shout out. Uh, A call out, I guess. Uh, For colonialism, really fucked over queer people. India famously did not have anti-sodomy laws until the British Empire. You know, you have... Native American cultures who always had, you know, two-spirit as a gender, and then, like, that kind of got squashed. Not completely, obviously. There are still people who have that identity today, but mm-hmm. it was definitely uh, made a lot harder. Is that because it challenged, like, so the Native people in these various places, the indigenous people there, having their own social structure, like, challenged the, you know, the ideology, the ruling ideology of, of the colonizers? I would say yes. I think I think a lot of it is just racism too. Just mm-hmm. that these these are savages. They don't have our religion, etc. Yeah. And in order to have power in those regions, now you had to be white. And if you were white, you had to be heterosexual. You know, like you had to follow those rules. So you were kind of tearing down the, you know, what you're trying. You're basically stamping out 
you know, whatever culture mm-hmm. that they would have and replacing it with your, you know, with their, with the colonizer's superior culture or whatever. Yes. Yes. And again, entire books have fucking been written on this. So <laughs> just wanted to touch on that. Yeah. Uh, I also want to get to our buddy Marx and Engels. Let's do it. I love Marx. I love Engels. Well, they were homophobic. <laughs> oh my God. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They weren't great about it. There's this guy, Jean-Baptiste von Schweitzer. Okay. He was a German politician and a poet, because I guess you just could do both back then. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. <laughs> but he, he got charged with homosexuality and, like, famously, Marx and Engels, like, didn't support him. I think they even, like, cracked some sort of joke about, like, at his expense. Wow. So, yeah, it wasn't great. You know, very early meaning Marxist time socialism movements. Mm-hmm. They were kind of a mixed bag on on queerness. Okay. The Communist Party of Germany and the Social Democrats there supported legalizing homosexuality. So, like, cool. Yeah. Very low bar, but cool. Yeah, I mean, hey, it's uh, <laughs> it's an improvement, right? That would be good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in general, what was radical about bar- Marxism, and we talked about this in our uh, episodes on the Manifesto, I think that's mm-hmm. episodes three and four, they wanted the end of the family unit in terms of how it plays into capitalism like we talked about with the unpaid labor and how it basically you know enslaves women into these roles Mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily want the end of like love and romance like that part of the family they weren't saying like you can't get married under marxism (laughs) they're just saying (laughs) that like hey this is going to be a better situation for us economically okay so they were they were against the family the nuclear family specifically, right? Yes, yeah. I would say yes. Okay. And that was really radical. You know, like the idea that, oh, I could just, since I'm not economically dependent on someone because the society is set up this way, I could just leave a partner if they get violent. Like that's fucking huge. Yeah, that is. That's true. Did you have anything on like the theory bit, that first part of the... Yeah, I wanted to touch on that because um, I think it's important to kind of, uh, what would we call it? We could demystify... Mm-hmm. Uh, how the family unit comes to be so central to capitalist uh, societies. Yeah. You did say that like, okay, things were better on at an individual level for certain people when you moved mm-hmm. to capitalism. But I think that overall, given the norms that society ends up following, there's, you kind of see an increase almost in systemic oppression, I guess, for queer people yes i i would absolutely agree with that because i mean there a lot of women are queer and these women now are all basically enslaved in unpaid labor when you have the transition to capitalism right and you are changing the way that society makes a living it's basic Mm -hmm. economy and in theory they call this the base okay the economic base okay of a society uh, that encompasses its means of production, and so how it makes stuff, yeah. but also the relations of production, who is in charge, who is working for whom, that sort of thing. The masters and the workers. Uh, when that base was changed from feudalism, and how you were saying the like family relations were there, mm-hmm. when you change that base, when you change the means of production and everything, you're going to change the other half of society's kind of workings. You have the base and you have the superstructure. Whoa, okay. 
That's a cool word, superstructure. That is. <laughs> so the superstructure of a society is its culture, its ideology, its institutions, you know, rituals or its sense of morality. Okay. All that is mm, built on top of the base and it's built to reinforce the base. Okay, that makes sense. It's like it's like the environment basically. Yeah, and it's also kind of it's society's defense of why the base is in place. It's its explanation. Mm, okay, gotcha. In feudalism, you had the divine divine right of kings sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. You have this great chain of being, you have like everybody should be in this place. This is how it is. That's, you know, the preeminent role of the church. All that is built into a defense of the economic relations at the base. It's explaining why it's there. Yeah, like props it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the the relationship. The base is supposed, they debate about this, but like the base kind of shapes the superstructure. Okay. Mm. So it's where all these institutions and stuff come from. Yeah, yeah. And the superstructure maintains the base. Interesting. Okay. I can't think of a good analogy, but I like it. I mean, I don't like it, but it's interesting. <laughs> it's a useful explanation. It's a useful lens yeah. of looking at it. Because when you say, okay, in capitalism now, the capitalists in power uh, have to, they now have a base where they need certain things to happen. For one, they're accumulating wealth. Mm-hmm. And they need to be able to pass on that wealth to their heirs as they go on, which leads to a more controlling of women's sexuality. Yep. Because they only want to pass it on to the legitimate heir, whatever. <laughs> right? To do to accomplish that and to accomplish another goal of theirs, which is reproducing their workforce, more mm-hmm. people to put into the cogs of the capitalist machine. To do that, they are going to need these nuclear families. Mm-hmm. And they're going to like need to subjugate women also so they can have free labor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That free labor is a lot of money that they're not having to spend to keep, you know, their workers alive to keep making them profits. Mm-hmm. And so they like use this morality culture. It was super popular in like Victorian times to be like the mom, the mother as the morality figure of the family, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like that was her job is to teach everyone morals and to be this pure beacon. Yeah. And that's also something you see in early American history, too. You have this idea of Republican motherhood. Mm, yeah. Mothers were supposed to kind of instill the virtues of, you know, democracy and all this to their to their kids and raise, you know, good Americans, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. The, the idea here, I guess, that I'm getting at is that capitalism intentionally builds up these structures, right? The, 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 the thing, the institutions in that superstructure, right? Mm-hmm. It's based on defending its means of production. So the nuclear family is based on that. And the, telling everybody the nuclear family is super important. It's great. It's good. If you're going out there saying that, you can't have people that are like not fitting into that, which would be anybody in the queer community. Exactly. And that that's what I wanted to circle back on because mm-hmm. I think a lot of this episode, like we're going to talk about women a lot. And I think you could listen to this and be like, why isn't this an episode on like women and communism? It certainly could be, but I think an important part of the queer community is sort of a rejection of gender roles. And 
you know, at its, you know, very elementary level, that's just like, well, now you have two women together. So like, there's not, in this case, there wouldn't be a primary breadwinner in like the capitalist system. So like, that would be a problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in those very base levels, you have those kinds of power dynamics. But also, like, I think the whole idea of the nuclear family, you can have that as a gay person, for sure. You can get married. You can have your two kids in a picket fence. That's not a problem. Yeah. But I think one thing that I'm seeing, especially in, like, the younger generation of queer community, is a real questioning of that and of, like, Mm. why are we so isolated from each other? Why don't we have a bigger community? Oh, yeah. And pushing for more. Mm. So, which I have a whole fucking talk about that at the end so <laughs> awesome can't wait to hear that that's it i hadn't hadn't thought of that so yeah that was kind of the theory part portion of it i guess one thing i would add is um kind of to build on that sort of theory side of it and also to say you know why is it so important for us to be talking about this as a subject that communists should care about mm-hmm. aside from just being good people right <laughs> yeah right is I think there's a big therefore here, which is that the oppression of the queer community and the oppression mm-hmm. of women in that as well is rooted in a defense of capitalism. Right? Absolutely. So therefore, the liberation of those groups is an integral part of fighting against capitalism. Ooh, I love that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I came up with it. Yeah, not an original insight, but... <laughs> Sorry, no, it does make it sound like, no, no, no. Um, I wasn't just being a jerk for no reason. I love that because like that totally folds into some of the early like gay liberation movements. So like spot on. Awesome. Let's briefly detour into Russia. Again, okay. could be a whole episode. Uh, but long story short, it's very similar to other social laws uh, that we've talked about before on this podcast. If you go listen to our what was life really like in the Soviet Union episode, mm-hmm. um, you'll get kind of the main gist of this it kind of follows that same pattern 1917 they got rid of all the czar's sexuality laws they, yeah. they, they decriminalized homosexuality nice i do want to issue a correction a listener mentioned that we said in that episode that they were the first like major world power to give women the right to vote ah okay and apparently australia did it in 1905 oh there you go corrected we stand job australia yeah but besides that, they had a lot of like really cutting edge shit. They had some of the earliest known gender affirming surgeries. Oh, okay. Women could serve in the Red Army. You could also have trans men in the Red Army because they were just seen as men. Yeah. Which is cool. Um, they even had a couple same sex weddings. Like it was pretty radical at the beginning. Yeah. Like a lot of early revolutionary stuff. They just kind of threw it all out and said, no, we're doing this different now. Yeah. Okay. And they even had, I think you've mentioned this guy before, Georgie Chicharin. He was an openly gay foreign minister. Yeah, that's right. So it was good for a bit. (laughs) In general, though, a lot of people, like, I guess, I don't know if they were theorists or people in the party, maybe we can Mm -hmm. say, they fell into two camps. There's one group of like people who are all about the freedom, freedom for consenting adults, basically, like do whatever the heck you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you have people like Alexandra Kolontai on this side. She was very much about like, hey, this, it's cool. Like <laughs> women should be able to fuck and they should be able to enjoy it, basically. Yeah. And people in general, right? I mean, she was focused yeah, on women. Yeah. She was saying free love, actually. She was just saying that. Yeah, like, she really was. <laughs> yeah. She could totally be an episode topic. She's cool. Yeah. The other side of that 
is people who are focused more uh, on the reproduction side of thing as it pertained to making enough labor. Okay. So obviously things were tough then, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So they wanted to make sure they had enough people. And uh, you have an example from Lenin. I think this was in a letter he wrote admonishing, quote unquote, skirt chasing as anti-revolution. <laughs> Which, unfortunately, later they published that posthumously in order to support Stalin's, like, stricter family morals. Mm, yeah. So, like, that kind of sucks. <laughs> typical Stalin. Yeah. And in typical Stalin fashion, when he takes over, that is, that's when things get bad. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think, Colin Tai basically, she gets put out to be a diplomat at that point, I think. She gets, oh, shit. she's like, go talk to other countries, whatever, yeah. get out of here. We don't want to hear you anymore. Yeah, that's honestly the, the friendliest thing that could have happened to her at that yeah. point. <laughs> and she lives until 1950, I think. You know, she never gets purged or anything. Wow. When did Stalin take over? Took over in 20... 20- okay. So that makes sense. So yeah, the 20s is definitely when things start to go downhill. It was, it was more like a, there was tolerance for homosexuality, but again, you also still had medical people trying to classify it as a mental disorder, which fucking sucks. And then once Stalin is actually in power, then it really just sucks because he made a crime punishable by five years in prison with hard labor. Ugh. And do you want to take a guess at when that was repealed? When was that repealed? Uh, let's say 1980. It's later than that. Oh, man. <laughs> 1993. 1993 in, in yeah. Russia then? like Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I was born, and then Russia was like, man, queer people are cool. Or at least they're not so uncool that you have to... <laughs> I mean, it's not like they're exactly a paradise for queer people there. God, no. It's horrible. No. It's very bad. Uh, they also did this weird thing where they associated queerness with fascism mm, and the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Ernst Strom was the head of like the German like the Nazi stormtroopers, apparently he was gay. Yeah. So there were like a lot of political cartoons, like showing like these super effeminate Nazi soldiers making fun of them. It's just shitty. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's kind of a trope that's been in that, that was happening not just in Russia, but in Germany as well. And like the social democratic and the communist party were doing that. They were, you know, just making these personal attacks saying you're gay and that's bad. Yeah, yeah, basically. Instead of saying, you're a Nazi, that's bad, you know? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is not someone you're just, like, trying to defend, but you really shouldn't just be attacking their gayness as a sign of being fascist. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's how I feel when people, like, fat shame, like, or make obesity jokes about Trump. I'm like, there are literally so many other things you could be insulting him for. Can we not do that? Yeah, because like, you're you're trying to impugn their character in some way mm-hmm. through this other thing that really shouldn't be associated with it. Exactly. So, what's funny about that, we're going to flip over to the U.S., where on that side of the pond, there was, there's been a long association with homosexuality and communism. What? So being, being in a <laughs> queer community means you are either a fascist or a communist? Depending where you are wow. and what time period wow. you're in. <laughs> okay. Hit me with it. Yeah, we all know about the Red Scare. There was also something called the Lavender Scare, which basically, if they couldn't find anything straight up communist about you, they might throw in um, that 
maybe you're gay and mm -hmm. that would be enough to take you out of things. Um, yeah. In fact, you could be barred from federal employment. Well, you were barred from federal employment if, uh, if you were homosexual. This is Executive Order 10450. It's my least favorite. 1953. President Dwight Eisenhower signed this into, into effect, barring uh, homosexual people from serving in the federal employment. Shitty. Yeah. Well, their explanation would have been uh, that they saw such people, like you were saying, okay, that might be evidence of communist sympathy mm -hmm. but from the federal government's explanation of it was that that could be used as blackmail that may it was a security measure oh that's super weird yeah that we think that these people would be you know more susceptible to blackmail from foreign powers so they're a security risk so they can't serve that's insane doesn't that include like the fucking post office yeah, I mean, it includes a lot okay, of Are you going to blackmail your postal person? Like, what the heck? You know, and it was just actually part of a broader, just oppression of anybody mm -hmm. who, didn't fit, who didn't fit that norm. Do you want to know how long Executive Order 10450 stayed in effect? Was it till 64? No. Oh, gosh. So in 1973, a federal judge ruled a person's sexual orientation could not be the sole reason for termination from federal employment. It could just be part of the list. In 1975, the Civil Service Commission announced that they would consider applications by gays and lesbians on a case-by-case -case basis. Wow, thanks. And uh, <laughs> executive order, the, the overall executive order stayed in effect until 1995 when Jeez. Bill Clinton rescinded the order and put into place Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That's very late. Which, again, it's oh. not really great either. Don't ask, don't tell. But no, also bad. It's better than straight up barring. But that's 1995. Woof. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Cool country. Right. Completely normal. <laughs> All right. So let's touch briefly on Stonewall. I don't want to get too much into it. It's very famous. Okay. Do a Google. What I want to talk about are all the movements that came out of Stonewall. Uh, you have the foundation of the Gay Liberation Front. Ooh. I want to talk about this because, first off, that fucking name. That's cool. <laughs> like, before, you had a lot of these kind of almost underground gay clubs. Or, not clubs. That sounds like a club. But, like, <laughs> organizations. Uh, societies. Yeah. Organizations. And they had, like, these very, like, cutesy, like... The Mattachine Society was one of them. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you wouldn't know that that was, like, gay unless right. you showed up, you know? Okay, that makes sense. And then after Stonewall, there's, like, fuck it. Like, we're here. Mm -hmm. So they were established as a reaction to that. And here's what I love about them and about the groups of this time in particular. They were, their whole platform was anti-racist. They supported the Black Panther Party. Awesome. They were explicitly anti-capitalist. Nice. They were... Uh, very against the interference in Central America, did lots of protesting about that. Cool. And generally were against the nuclear family and traditional gender roles. Mm -hmm. So they're just fucking badass. Yeah. And their name is super, like we have to add that to our name generator. I was thinking about that too, just like add a queer option. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Liberation Front is very good too. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, they were so subversive. In fact, the FBI had them monitored as a subversive organization in oh, the yeah. 70s. So, you know you're doing something right. <laughs> yeah, anyone to the left of the Democratic Party, essentially, was 
monitor and even some of them were so yeah that makes sense that old hoover's crew would be doing that yeah for sure so what i love about this era is that you have this explosion of organizations with Mm -hmm. all these like really intense names yeah Uh, some of them include the radical lesbians oh third world gay revolution damn that's awesome (laughs) it gets better street transvestite action revolutionaries Whoa. And the radical fairies. Talk about scaring the straights with all that. (laughs) Right? Like, they just were like, fuck it. Like, you know, they're going to call us gay anyway. Might as well go for it. Yeah. I love it. That's excellent. (laughs) So what was interesting, you had these really early movements that were super leftist, you know, like that was their thing. Mm -hmm. But as you, as these groups like got bigger and... I I feel like the goals kind of shifted. They started fracturing more and more and more white gay men became more the leaders. Like, you know, it's, it's common knowledge now. Thankfully now we all know about like Marsha P. Johnson, you know, and Mm. you know, a black trans woman being, you know, the face of the early movement. But after that initial, like really radical wave, you started having more fracturing, more people like just saying like, okay, I'm going to go start my own thing. Or you had, it was easier for white gay men to get into positions of power. So they would just like be the face of it. Mm, Things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And there began to be a shift instead of liberation. There was more of a focus on inclusion, like coming out was the big thing. It was like, that's, that's what you got to do. Okay. And with that, I mean, like I get it. That's a good place to start. Humanizing people is an important thing, but it also kind of came with this sort of shaming uh, for example, Stonewall was a police riot, right? Mm-hmm. And there began to be this kind of language, like, if you don't want to get, ar- get arrested at a gay dive bar, then maybe you should go to a more respectable middle-class bar, <laughs> you know? Okay. So it was, the focus shifted to, to just like, please don't kill us. We'll try to be like you. More assimilation, I would say. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. You're saying that this led to a lot of splits or this was like what came out of the splits or I think it was kind of both, honestly. Okay. I'm not sure. Cause uh, I feel like it's like a lot of leftist orgs. <laughs> There's going to be lots of splits. Yeah. It makes sense. And then when all the radicals split into the various, you know, uh, well, we're the Trotskyist, we're the Trotskyist mm-hmm. group or whatever. Like they all have their different, their different groups. Then your mainstream, your accommodationist ones are going to be the ones who, stick together yeah yeah and overall like we see this in the fight for discrimination anti-discrimination laws and which are important and great and i think we should have them Mm -hmm. but i think a lot of times the goals for that were set to appease basically white middle class capitalist ideals Mm -hmm. which we'll get into that okay all right i do want to touch on the aids crisis all right which I learned had more deaths than the wars in Southeast Asia. Wow. Like Vietnam. I assume American deaths. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Pretty bad. Um, I will say this is definitely where the gay community shined. Um, Mutual aid was huge. Like everyone was just out there educating and Mm -hmm. taking care of people like doing their thing. Awesome. And this, this kind of healed some of that fracturing that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I definitely want to touch on that. Again, very big topic, but yeah. But then we get to the fight for marriage, and here's here's where I have some some sticking points. 
So I learned a lot of this stuff from this DSA talk. They have like a a queer action group and there was a talk. You can just find it on SoundCloud. It's only like 35 minutes or something. Mm -hmm. Well, this quote, this, this guy said, I really liked, I I wrote it down. He said, the benefits of identity based movements are unequally distributed. Uh, The more privilege you have, the more gains you can get from these movements. So you can see this in the fight for gay marriage because let's say you are a white male gay person. If Uh you get married to another white gay male person, you're going to be in a lot better position than let's say a black lesbian married to like a bisexual trans woman. Yeah, that's true. So you have the fight for marriage. And like, again, I am married. I like being married. I think gays obviously should be able to get married, Mm -hmm. but I think the problem for me and for a lot of maybe younger queer people in this movement is that we have a problem with that being the end goal. I think a lot of people think a lot of maybe maybe it's just straights. I don't know. (laughs) A lot of people are like, we're done. We did it. You know, hooray. But it's, you know, I have so many questions like, is it fair that health insurance is still tied to marriage? Why? Why do we do that? Yeah, (laughs) it's crazy. And, And tied to employment at all it tied to employment at all exactly like why is marriage the end all be all of rights you know why are we so obsessed with romantic love think about the nuclear family isn't this just another way to shove gay people into the nuclear family it's assimilationist in that way it's saying we don't worry we're going to play the game we're going to be in the you know in the nuclear family too we just we just want to be in in this group with you exactly so we're no longer in the out group now no longer a threat think about what about asexual people or aromantic people people who just don't want that for their lives Mm -hmm. people who are polyamorous they will not fit into that sex um that system is there a difference sorry between aromantic and asexual so asexual means you don't want a bone there's degrees you can be demi which means like you might want to sometimes it might be with the right person okay and then aromantic is you don't want romance but you might still want sex oh all right that makes sense yeah cool one thing I was thinking about is that maybe the maybe one of the reasons why marriage came up as such a driving such a driving cause for the movement that, like you said, doesn't address so many of the problems that the queer mm-hmm. community faces, doesn't address, you know, workplace discrimination or getting hired in the first place or being mm-hmm. able to be fired because of your sexuality. You know, doesn't address any or like access to gender affirming surgery, any of those things is because the white male leadership of the group was not that wasn't a thing for, you know, that they had to face. Yeah, that wasn't their priority. They didn't really have struggles with, you know, their workplace or any of that stuff. I think, yeah. And I think when you consider that privilege, it makes sense. I I think it was pretty easy for them. I mean, maybe this is an unfair characterization, but it very much feels like the trans community for a very long time has been pushed to the back of like, mm. that's too much for people right now. We just need to get them to see us as people. And marriage is an easy way to do that. Cause it's like, look, it's, we're just like you. Like yeah. we also want to live the American dream and stuff like that. Whereas like for a lot of people just starting with trans education was just too much. And I feel like we're finally now to a point where we're starting to have these conversations, but it's been a long fucking time. Yeah, I think we are, it's it's happening, like you're saying, right? Like, it's people mm-hmm. are having the conversations. I don't think it was, what do you think? You, th- you think it was bad, basically, for them to 
put that on the back burner for so long to deal with to deal with marriage equality? I mean, I think I would say yes, just because mm-hmm. again, it's it's the idea of privilege and like who was who was having these conversations, you know? Yeah. When you look at the radical roots of of like gay liberation, mm-hmm. and then you get to that, it's just like man. And can we please have health insurance? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And like another thing I want to talk about was was have you heard of the term rainbow capitalism? Yes, I have heard of that term. Yeah. Yeah. So it's when basically corporations realized, oh, so gay people are here, we can make them buy shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you get Pride Month, and you have all the cutesy exactly. little logos everyone changes their logo everyone buys a you know sponsors a float in the parade and you think about even like gay neighborhoods now are like a trendy thing and they're like a huge cost of gentrification mm-hmm. and it is just this commodification of identity to the point where it's like that's not why we're here <laughs> like yeah it's it only works for some people I guess is what I'm saying. I think it's interesting to look at in terms of our conversation about the theory earlier with the base mm-hmm. and the superstructure. Cause here you have an Definitely. example of the interplay, right? So the superstructure has actually changed somewhat. Right. And that's, yeah. that's what you're starting to see it's with. Like we're kind of okay with gay people. Now. Yeah. But a certain <laughs> kind, a certain kind, Definitely. A kind that fits otherwise with the capitalist norms and, and they're, they're otherwise doing what, we need them to do, basically, mm-hmm. from the capitalist perspective. And that is, you know, that's changing in the superstructure. And you're, you know, what does that mean for, like, the base or for how the, how society works? Because, like, okay, they still need a nuclear family, or they still need some sort of a family situation happening to where they have all the work of raising children. Like, that still needs to happen. What are they going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, how are they going to, and that's where you kind of start to see instead of a nuclear family, you just see like, do it anyway. Like there's, there's no time. Like you both work, everyone works in the, in the family because you have to, to get by and you have to raise your kids and Hey, just, you know, that's, that's it. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, you, that happened to women too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it used to be, you know, homemakers and now they enter their workforce and it's like, okay, well now you're here. You're just going to work forever. Yeah. Sorry. Now now you have it, you know, you have both and they and they both suck. Yeah. Congrats. <laughs> yeah, what's interesting to me and we we already mentioned it with with you know the idea of who's the face of the movement and to me it's very easy to see when you look at things like rainbow capitalism because it's like who is benefiting off of this the most? Like we all know a rich white gay man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like the, those are way more common than let's say like rich black trans women who are murdered on a regular basis. Yeah, that's very true. So there's intersectionality here and we need to, you know, be held accountable for it. By the way, last year, half of the uh, murders of trans people were in Dallas. And half of the... Well, half were in Texas and then I think half of those were in Dallas. Half of America, of the numbers in America were in Texas. Was in Texas. Yeah. And then like half of those were in Dallas. Wow. Yeah. Fucking sucks. That is crazy. Yeah. And most of those were black women. One thing I wanted to add is that, you know, I don't think we're trying to, because we're coming across a little negative maybe. We're not trying to say like (laughs) that, you know, the fight for marriage equality wasn't good. It was definitely important, you know, and... uh, was a 
you know, a major step for lots of people. And I think maybe it helped in kind of, I'll say normalizing, but like making, yeah, making yeah. it less scary maybe for straight people. I you know, the so. world didn't fall apart like they thought it was going <laughs> to, you know, all this. And so it kind of opens the door maybe for the conversations that we're having now about the broader queer community. Mm-hmm. But it's just like we were saying, it's not enough to stop there and say, well, we got it. Like you said, we win. Hooray. You know, we yeah. have to push forward. I mean, with numbers like that, you've got to do something to keep people safe. You've got to be able to, you know, fight for people's rights still beyond just that one right that capital is willing to give you. Exactly. Yeah. Again, yeah. I Obviously, I'm, I'm into marriage. <laughs> But I don't think it's like a sound economic structure. I don't think it's fair. Like, it doesn't make sense that you get tax breaks for being married. Like, why? What what if you just don't want to get married? Like, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, tax breaks could be used as a way to encourage something that you want. But I mean, why do you specifically need to prod people into marriage? It seems like they do that already. Like, yeah. I mean, I just don't get it. I mean, honestly, like, real talk. The reason I got married when I did was because I needed Kyle to get on my insurance. So like, <laughs> I mean, we were going to get married anyway. Yeah. But like, that sucks that we had to like build our lives around that. Oh, man. Yeah. Marx talks about the gross way in which capital makes everything an economic economic relation of some sort. Yeah. Anytime someone gets married before 26, I'm like, damn, you're rich, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To, to have, have life in have life in a good enough place for that yeah <laughs> uh another thing though i wanted to mention when you were saying because we're also kind of criticizing and saying you know gay white men are doing this or whatever yeah yeah they're allies as well we just got to make sure that we're all fighting for each other's rights together rather than prioritizing one groups or saying like like we were mentioning uh putting trans rights on the back burner or anything mm-hmm. like everybody's got to be fighting on all fronts right yes yes and yeah i don't mean at all to like <laughs> just disparage all gay white men sure. like and they have faced real you know tangible discrimination and still do to this day mm-hmm. like obviously i am an ally to them too i think what troubles me is whenever you see some of that community kind of forgetting where where the movement came from and just being kind of content to reap the benefits that only they can get. Yeah. They're comfortable now having secured something for themselves. When that happens, that's not good. They Exactly. People should continue to fight for the rights of everyone in that, in their community as well. For sure. Another thing might be like dividing into groups or uh, to me, I don't know. It kind of relates to, when people say, oh, we've got to, you know, either fight for the rights of minorities or convince the white working class, whatever, to join us. Or if they're like, oh, we got to play just class politics or just identity politics. Like, this should be a broader coalition of our all of our interests, like, right at the same time, instead of saying, oh, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. I mean, yeah, it's it's intersectionality, baby. Mm-hmm. It's the way to go. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I think what frustrates me about whenever people only have a class analysis, I, I bump up against it because I'm just like, I mean, 
trans young people are way more likely to be homeless. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. and like queer young people in general. That's not, that's not because they're in a secret class. (laughs) It's because of their identity. Yeah. And the base superstructure analysis gives you the key to fit to seeing why intersectionality is so important is because when you're striking a blow against that superstructure that's defending capitalism, you're striking a blow against capitalism. So when you are fighting for all these different identity groups and their rights and you're joining with them and you're not saying, oh, I'm going to fight on behalf of you, but I'm going to fight with you, then you are, you know, teaming up in a fight against capitalism. Exactly. Like the Gay Liberation Front. They understood that like, oh, we we just need to work together with these people because we're fighting the same fight. Mm -hmm. Yep. Our struggle is their struggle. Exactly. I'm also, I just wanted to mention, I'm reading a really good book now. It's called Invisible Women. Mm -hmm. And it's about like statistics and how most studies like just either male is the default or they don't gather data on women or like they don't separate the data. So like there's just... There's a lot of problems that come from that. (laughs) Like uh, there's a whole chapter on transportation and how women are more likely to be caretakers. So they're more likely to make disjointed trips, like several trips and more likely to use public transportation. Okay. So when you look at something like a snow day, they'll clear out the big roads first because they're thinking everyone's going to work. They're not thinking of the women who aren't going to work because they're caretaking. And so, and they're more likely to get into accidents. Like it's much harder to like walk on an icy or bicycle on an icy sidewalk with like a buggy. Yeah. Than it is to like drive a car in some snow. Interesting. Yeah, it's really, it's a really good book. Oh. All right. Next, I want to get to fully automated luxury gay space communism. Oh, yeah. Um, it's the dream, baby. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, this term kind of, I feel like started out as a joke, but I mean, it's what I fucking want. It's, um, <laughs> It's the paradise, right? It's the utopia. It's replicator technology. We're all happy together in our commune. What I wanted to talk about this this term is is a gateway to. I have my own like queer leftist theory. I want to lay it on you. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's hear it. I view queerness as potentially inherently revolutionary. All right. I say potentially just because, again, not everyone takes advantage of this. Some people are like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm gay and also capitalist. They're, those people suck. But <laughs> <laughs> they may just be incorrect for now. Maybe. Okay. Maybe they'll learn. Maybe they'll learn. But to me, my version of queerness is it is a rejection of a lot of things that were imposed upon us. So I think a rejection of gender is kind of inherently in there, particularly if you are non-binary or gender queer. Mm-hmm. There is a rejection of the patriarchy because you're, you know, if you're a gay man, then you're saying, I don't need like a woman specifically to raise my children. I think I can handle that. Yeah. And all the identities kind of deal with that in their own way. Rejection of misogyny, again, kind of the same deal. Like that's why we talked about women's rights and a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Potential rejection of nuclear family, you don't have to if you really want that. But I have seen in the queer community, there is a lot more emphasis on found family. (laughs) Because a lot of queer people still do get rejected from their biological family. There is a much more, there's a higher tendency to take in basically friends as family. Makes sense, yeah. And I guess you could see a rejection of the traditional nuclear family. Definitely. As capitalism kind of portrays it, you know. Man, woman, children. 
Yeah, yeah. And I would I would say even ways like I you know, myself as an example, like I am not the domestic person in our partnership. I am <laughs> I <Yeah>. am just <laughs> terrible at it. If I am left if Kyle leaves town, I will just not clean. Like <laughs> it just doesn't happen. And, you know, that may seem really small and trivial, but like when it comes down to it, we're really looking at each other's strengths and likes Mm -hmm. and dislikes and saying like, what are you actually good at? And what do you actually want to do? What do you have time to do? And like, that's going to shift and change over a relationship. And that's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Like there's, there's no assumptions made on who quote unquote should be doing what. Yeah. Whose job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would also say that queerness has the potential to really focus on taking care of communities and basically just rejecting capitalism because like i said it destroys so many of our community you know like Mm. there's just a huge queer homeless population you know queer murders and just just horrors of capitalism yeah and that's all part of that reinforcing of what the capitalists want right they have to keep people in line basically it's kind of authoritarian in that way all these things Mm -hmm. you're describing of the nuclear family of the police Mm-hmm. in terms of definitely whether they're actually going to go after and find who's shooting trans people. Yeah, no, they're, they're shitty at it. Yeah. And I think you're right when you say challenging this is challenging capitalism. Like we said, the struggle against these norms is a struggle against that part of the superstructure. So it's a struggle against capitalism. I think your theory is spot on, man. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's just kind of my credo these days. But I think what's cool, if you like look at the future, like far future luxury gay space shit, yeah. as those social responsibilities fade, you know, we get our replicators in. Mm-hmm. Gender roles, don't, why do we need those? We, Anyone can do anything because you can just press a button and do anything. And this is assuming, of course, that the, that the working class, that... The people have control mm-hmm. of the means of production. If we don't, we end up yes. in capitalist hellscape where there is oh. all this technology, but they just use it for themselves. <laughs> if we exactly, end yeah. up in you know democratically controlled society, economy, everything, then we can use this to say, okay, our reproduction of you know of humanity is mm-hmm. socially done now. Kids can be raised by the commune, by the people. Mm-hmm families in so much as they exist can just be free voluntary relationships between people independent of any sort of like economic necessity or anything like that yeah or like emotional like blackmailing like oh you have to forgive them they're your parents it's like what if they're shitty like Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know like you can just leave yeah there's a whole overturn of the of the, I think of the negative sides of family because there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with having sentimentality, having these sorts of oh, connections no. and stuff and bonds that are genuine. There's just no compulsion behind it anymore, right? I think it's a wider definition, you know, because if you're if you're in this commune, I think in a way they'll kind of become like family to you. Yeah, yeah. To the degree that you want that to be the case. I yeah, mean, you don't have to be all fucking kumbaya all the time. Because it does sometimes, I think... <laughs> whenever I'm reading communist theory and stuff about the possible futures or when you read like about utopian socialists and stuff and you're like, man, that's really social for me. That's heavy on the social side of it. I was thinking that too. I don't want to, I don't want to interact with people that way. And and you wouldn't have to, you know, you wouldn't. Yeah. 
you can still have your own cottage or whatever. Yeah, you can retreat. <laughs> you can be a hermit if you want. But society's yeah. there for you as well. Yeah. I'd, I'd also like to give an example of this in like a, a micro scale. Okay. When you have that, that lesser focus on material needs, you have more time to consider your identity. And an example of this would be that I only started thinking about like my gender identity once lockdown started because I was working from home and I had hella time and I no longer had to dress for like a fairly conservative office. Mm -hmm. I could just kind of wear whatever I wanted and just kind of got me started thinking. And now like I'm a genderqueer person and I'm way happier and I'm way more comfortable with myself. And that happened within like less than a year. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty crazy. Like imagine if, if everyone had like a lesser burden on, on their work-life balance. So they had more time to think about what gender means to them, what, what beyond gender and sexuality, yeah. even just like what, what kind of person do they want to be? Yeah. It kind of makes you realize why uh, there's this huge push to get everyone back to work. This huge resistance <laughs> to uh <laughs> shit. They're all turning queer. They're turning into queer <laughs> communists. I mean, Get them back to work. Right? I wonder how many leftist podcasts launched in the in the pandemic, you know? I mean, ours included. <laughs> I mean, we had suddenly had all this time to put this together. I wouldn't have been able to start this anyway. No, yeah. With the full workload and everything like normal. I, was, I mean, I guess I've been work, but like it's been different and like mm-hmm. kind of less in that way. So For sure. I think, yeah, I, I definitely agree that a lot of people end up with this time of rumination and when they don't this the the stuff like it is probably st- you know it's it's there they feel it it's anxiety but it's not something that mm-hmm. they get to that they get to grapple with yeah like you don't feel like you have the opportunity to explore that because you're just like oh, i'm too fucking busy like i need to make rent i need to whatever i need to survive mm-hmm. yeah and i guess to bring this back into the idea of fully automated luxury gay space communism is you would be free of that, you know, the, this brutal weight of having to struggle to survive. Mm-hmm. At that point, we'll move into this brand new chapter of human history where we can actually focus on just being and self-fulfilling, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Chilling. Which I, I think for me... Like I, I made a post about this a few weeks ago. Like I think for me, being queer kind of opens that door because it just to me gives you more options and makes you think like, okay, like do I want that traditional family? Because I don't, I don't have to. Nobody told me that I have to except for like society, and I can just say no. Yeah. And like, okay, do I need to have a traditional job nine to five situation? Or you know, there's just so many more questions that I feel able to ask myself now that I think before I was too like, Ooh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that seems like what you're supposed to do kind of stuff. Now I would like to tie this back into our earlier conversation. We were saying about kind of the reforms and the, and the, the laws and stuff, how it was a low bar just to be like, mm-hmm. Oh, well you can't get fired for whatever anymore. And that's not even yeah. a bar that most of the States of the United States have, have actually cleared. <laughs> nope. But those smaller fights, to, mm-hmm. to just change the legal part of the superstructure, make sure that like people can be can openly be themselves mm-hmm. is important because it doesn't do you any good to 
have time to think of what is my identity going, you know, what identity am I actually and how do I want to live that out mm-hmm. if you can't while still surviving in our society. That's true. Yeah. Those are definitely important and we should support yeah. those kinds of laws, which is a great segue to my next section. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of what issues we could focus on, definitely we should focus on anti-discrimination laws. Mm-hmm. I would also encourage the queer community to think not, I don't know, beyond that, it doesn't sound right, but think of other things too, in the sense of intersectionality between class and identity, like we were talking about. You want to support trans people, definitely pass some anti-discrimination laws. That's great. That's really going to help them a lot. Yeah. You know, it also really help them healthcare, healthcare that includes gender affirming server for surgeries. <laughs> and that's free. And that's for everyone. And it's not tied to your job. Yeah. It would also really help the queer community having HIV covered in there too. Is that like not covered? No, it's covered, but like I'm sure it's expensive as fuck. Yeah. Well, that's fair. Yeah. Include that. Having free healthcare would be huge for the queer community. Mm -hmm. Major. If you care about trans people getting murdered, maybe abolish the police. (laughs) Yeah. You know? For sure. If you care about the vast number of queer youth who are homeless, maybe think about public housing. Public housing. (laughs) We had that whole, the episode on the landlords. Mm, Yeah. All those solutions in terms of putting people in houses. When we have millions of units of available housing for people, people should be there instead of homeless. Yeah, for sure. If you care about the community at large, maybe consider childcare. You know, free childcare, if that's like good, Mm -hmm. that'll relieve a lot of unpaid labor of women and the enforcement of gender roles and the nuclear family, all that stuff. I think it's important. Again, I think those anti-discrimination things are important. That's going to protect a lot of people and it's will eventually change the minds, stuff like that. But I, I think it's important to look at a larger lens too. Yeah. And I like how you put that. It's not this or that we're saying. We need mm-hmm. to do these both. We need to fight exactly. for all of these things. They're all tied together in a platform of fighting for people's rights. And I think it, you can tie it back to the queer community by saying, like, look, our community is more likely to be affected by things, these things negatively. Like, we have less privilege, and so we should provide for those people by working on these issues. It's still a queer issue, is what I'm saying. If you look at queer organizations that are you know on the left and things like they know that they get that and Mm -hmm. they're fighting for that it's our job to kind of align ourselves with that you know and join with those groups instead of falling prey to you know the rainbow capitalism we were talking about before and (laughs) saying well we just need a we just need a pretty and nice form of capitalism (laughs) Yeah, we need a we need a gay president to bomb people. Right. Yeah, that co- that comic <laughs> keeps getting repurposed, or I keep seeing that comic where they oh, have I the people it. getting <laughs> bombed by a drone, and they're like, they say the next one will be dropped by a woman, or <laughs> I- I've been seeing the one that's like the plane, and it has different stickers on it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I've seen <laughs> that one good. too. We don't want to be going for what just like changing. Assimilation. Yeah, we don't want to be kind of figuring out ways to cooperate with capitalism. The whole thing is to fight it. Cool. Yeah. All right. That's all I got. That was awesome. Thanks. I learned a ton. Yay. And 
Still managed to contribute a little, I think. <laughs> no, you did for sure. <laughs> uh, not my strong suit, but this was super interesting, like learning how all this interplays. And I feel like I've been guilty somewhat in the past of being like, well, this is an issue, but it's like a little slice. It's like a little thing, you know? No, I have too. Like I'm, I'm passionate about it, but I also am like, man, we just got to focus on class. And I think that's a dangerous trap to fall into. Yeah. You should focus on class, but also understand that there's a lot of poor queer people too. Yeah, no, it's like we're Deleonist in terms of, yeah, in terms of uh, politics and action, but we're, we should also be in terms of our platform. We're not just going for this or that. Yeah. Broad, full pursuit of everything that working people, that poor people, that the dispossessed need. Yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, even if you look at the movements, like, choosing to partner with the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. Like, definitely support Black people, too. Like, don't don't forget about them. All know? oppressed groups. Because we're oppressed by the same thing, right? At the end of the day. Yeah. Same enemy. That's yeah. what we got to figure out. Also, you have to be anti-imperialist. Don't forget yes. that. Imperialism, it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm Now I'm, like, trying to... In the back of my head, I'm brainstorming how I could get a tattoo of two things can be true at once without being so obnoxious as to tattoo a quote from myself. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, how can I make that into like a symbol or something? Mm. Maybe I'll just get a Gemini tattoo. Could, yeah. And just be really, just everyone who meets me will just run away. <laughs> Are Gemini notorious? Yeah. It's us and Scorpios. And guess what? My best friend's a Scorpio. Ooh, y'all are a... We're unstoppable. Y'all are a dangerous duo. We are. All right. Next time, what do we want to talk about next time? I don't think it'll be necessarily a teach sort of thing, but more of a discussion. Yeah. We'll be right around Thanksgiving, and that's when everyone's doing their Christmas shopping. Yeah. Or various holiday shopping. In America, anyway. Yeah. And we should talk about small businesses, because I've been seeing so many posts talking about how you should only support small businesses shop small y'all shop small y'all yeah yeah and just break down why it can be good and why it can be not good yeah i think that we'll end up carrying on a little bit of our conversation about the base and superstructure thing here it's kind of baked into probably yeah the whole small business (laughs) glorification (laughs) yes so that'll be interesting yes some pros, some cons. Yeah, I really like that that framework. It's yeah, it's like it's galaxy brain. It's one of those lens <laughs> things where you start to see you start to see it all over. You know, like oh man, that's an example of yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Well, until then, you can find us online. We are on Instagram at Teach Me Communism, Twitter at Teach Communism. You can send us an email, teachmecommunism at gmail.com if you want to give us an episode topic suggestion. You know, if there's a cool book we should read or a movie we should watch, stuff like that. Um, You can also give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That is the best way for people to find us. So please do that. Makes me very happy. We love it. Yeah, it's like the best. We also are on YouTube. If that's your preferred podcast listening method, give give us a search there. And we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash teachmecommunism. For $5 a month only, you can get access to our very cool notes. Um, this time, they'll be my notes, mostly. Oh, great, you did some yeah, notes, I've right? Yeah, I've got a little bit. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Usually, it's Gray's notes. So. Yeah. 
So yeah, you can get access to that for all of our episodes. They're kind of fun. And also know that you'll be contributing to one of our local mutual aid funds because that's where we will be donating the profits from that. Or not just the profits, just all yeah, of it. Yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> this is a, yeah. not a non-profit, but I guess a, it's zero profit for us. We're not interested in the profits. So. We don't, we, or the no, money, no money, like it overall. We just don't get it. Yeah, we're good. Non-money. We have non-money. jobs. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Uh, that's it, right? Uh, yeah. How do we end this well, thing? Well, thank you. <laughs> get me thank out of here. you for teaching me communism this time. Hey. You're welcome. It was, it was awesome. Thanks thanks for studying. I did a little bit of studying. Last minute, of course. You did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be you. If you had texted me earlier in the week and said that you had done it early, I'd be like, who stole Grady's phone? <laughs> I'm an imposter. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Listeners, be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Teach Me Communism where the class struggle is always in session. All right. Stay frosty. Bye.